welcome everybody to our second podcast from BAME OT UK, a Let's Talk series. This is episode two, and as we are still celebrating the 33rd Black History Month, October 2020, we thought it would be advantageous to discuss with Black male occupational therapists, a rarity in the profession, by the way, about their experiences of the profession. Before we start our conversation, I thought I would share some statistics from NHS England's Chief Allied Health Officers blog 2020. It states, AHPs make up the third largest clinical workforce in health and care, but have one of the lowest percentages of workers from the global majority populations at 12.2% which is below the UK population average of 13.9% and significantly below the NHS workforce average of 19.9%. When considering workers from the global majority populations, representation in bandings of 8A and above, this figure drops well below 10%. There is a significant amount of work to do to change the employee landscape. Sir Simon Stevens, outgoing CEO of NHS England, has made a firm commitment that the NHS will lead on this as a model employer. Importantly, what we do know is that there is significant variation with regards to global majority populations representation across the 14 AHP professions, and this also differs regionally too. Suzanne Rastrick, the Chief Allied Officer, states diversity of our AHP workforce has frankly been insufficient and she says she does not expect forgiveness for this. She goes on to assure that her team and her are 100% committed to addressing this and changing it. So that is the scene setting for your talk today. Welcome everybody, welcome guys. And we are excited to have this podcast for BAME OT UK and within Black History Month. Before I start, could I ask each of you to introduce yourselves and tell us your ethnicity or heritage background? I'll just go round as I see you on my um, video panel. So I've got Chike first. Hi everyone, yeah, my name is Chike Konji. Um, I'm a band six occupational therapist and my um, heritage is half Nigerian, half Zimbabwean, but I'm a yeah, British UK citizen. The next person I've got is Oliver. Yeah, hello, yeah. yeah. Um, my name's Oliver. Um, I'm obviously an occupational therapist as well. Uh, yeah, that's, this is probably why it was so complicated. So um, my, uh, my dad is Jamaican. Uh, my mum's mixed race, so she's half white British and um half nigerian but then my dad's also like got some bangladesh in him it's all a bit mad but um yeah i'm a bit of everything thank you and yeah so you have a bit of bangladeshi and i'm bangladeshi so we have some connection there yeah. kwaiku over to you yeah my name is kwaiku ajman i I'm a band six occupational therapist and I, I am Ghanaian. Um, I've been living most of my uh, life in the UK, but I still class myself as a Ghanaian. 
Thank you, Kwaku. And Valentine, over to you. Hi, I'm Valentine, Valentine Machairo. Um, I am a Black African, but if we're going to get technical, um, my I was born in Zimbabwe, but my mom is from Zambia, so a bit of mixed heritage there, but yeah, I think I'm Zimbabwean fully. Thank you very much, Valentine. And Andre, you joined us. Could you tell us your full name and your uh, heritage background? Okay, yeah, uh, my name is Andre Anser. Um, I am half from a small island in the Caribbean called St. Kitts and um, half Ghanaian. Thank you for that, guys. And my name is Mushrat Ahmed Landiu, but I like to be called Mish. And my heritage background is um, Asian, British and Bangladeshi. So I'm going to start off with my first question. And again, I'll go around and ask you each the question. The first question is, how did you find out about occupational therapy? Shall we start with Valentine? So uh, I studied uh, sport and exercise science uh, at, um, at Coventry. Uh, at the time, I only had heard of occupational health. So when it came to occupational therapy, I kind of merged the two together, but, um, but I had poor understanding of it. So I had um, a clinical uh, practice uh, placement um, just at a hospital. Um, and the setting was a clinical, well, was, was a stroke community setting. And um, I was, you know, busy around different other healthcare professionals, you know, speech and language, uh, physios, but then I came across OTs and, you know, I saw the group session that they were running. I was just enamored with what they were doing. I thought it was really cool, creative, uh, out the box thinking. And it led me to want to research, the, you know, the profession and find out a bit more information. And the one thing that kept coming up was the Kawa model. And I kept seeing Michael Iwama. So I thought, okay, this is a dude OT. So, and you know, I love, you know, the, the, his ideas of the Kawa model. You know, OT seems like the next fit. So <laughs> little did I know that it was limited information on what, um, you know, the profession was, the demographics within it. So I was in for a shell shock when, when I first started uni, so. Thank you, thank you, that was that an interesting segue into occupational therapy from sports to hockey health to occupational therapy yeah interesting and then you also uh, kind of quickly latched on to that kawa model as well which is also quite unique because you don't hear about that first you hear about all the other models first so thank That's, you for that yeah thank you oliver same question to you. How did you find out about occupational therapy? All right, so um, I've, I come from quite um, a creative background. So um, when I was young, I used to go to Brit school and I used to do music, I used to do singing and things like that. When I, when I left school, I kind of wasn't sure what I wanted to do because um, music was kind of all that I knew. And um, I knew that I didn't want to become like a music teacher or anything like that because I didn't have a passion for that. So I needed to get into something. So I started, um, first of all, I started working off in, working in, um, in a library for a little while, but I quickly realised that I was a bit boring and I wanted something a little bit more exciting. But my passion always was kind of to work with young people, being that I was young myself, but I always felt like I had something to give in terms of working with young people. So when I was about 21, I was just like 
searching, searching, searching for jobs, searching for jobs. And um, I went on the NHS website. I don't even know why I went on the NHS website, but I just went on there to to, to look. And um, I saw that they were looking for like a, a children's OT technical instructor, it was called at the time. And I just thought, I didn't know, I didn't know what occupational therapy was, but I thought, you know what, like, let me just try and give it a go because I knew it would be working with children. So I applied for the job at the time and I didn't get it. Um, and I was like, wow, okay. Like keep, kept, kept on searching, kept on searching. Then the same job came up again about six months later. But this time I thought, let me try and do a bit more preparation for it because obviously I hadn't heard of OT and some of the questions that they were asking me at the time, I didn't even know what they were talking about. So um, my mum, she works in like safeguarding at the time and she was able to get me to do like a day working, just, just some job experience with, with an OT just for a day. And then I, I done that. And obviously when I went back for the same interview, I was, a, I was a lot more informed in terms of what I was able to say. And then from there, obviously at that point I got the job. Um, I was doing the job for about four or five years. Um, and then I got to a point where, you know, I needed to make a little bit more money and I wanted to achieve a few, a bit more in, in my life. And when you're an OT, especially when you're an OT assistant, at some point you get to a place where you're like, do you know what, like, I think I can do what you guys are doing. The only thing was, is that I didn't have, firstly, the piece of paper, yeah, because that's important. You need that, you need that piece of paper. But um, also, also, I didn't have the the actual knowledge and the true understanding of what I was doing. Do you see what I mean? So that's when I actually, one of the, it was a speech and language, speech and language therapy lead at the time. It was a black lady. Um, she said, she come to me and she was like, why don't you do it? And I was like, I've, I always didn't see myself as really as an academic person. I was more of a practical person. And so the thought of sort of going to uni was a little bit overwhelming, to be honest with you. But because they said that they were going to support me through it in terms of like financially and stuff, I, I kind of had nothing else to lose. Do you see what I mean? So I just jumped on four years later, completed the course and, and, and now I'm here. So yeah, bit of a journey, but but I'm here now. That's a great story, actually. That you know why it's inspiring because you thought it's not for me. I shouldn't belong there, mm. but you've pushed yourself to belong there, and everybody belongs in education. So it's good to hear you persevered and came into it, and thankfully you are now a member of the occupational therapy profession. Thank you for that story little bit of inspiration there thank you <laughs> Chike can we go to you please same question yeah so um how I found about OT my um well I started really when I was kind of in college I did school and exercise science similar to Valentine um and then through there I went into university and I've done a degree in rehabilitation um but following that degree in terms of kind of job satisfaction or career progression I couldn't um I wanted to kind of progress further so I was working in a gym, I was working for a bit with children, uh, doing coaching, and I was also working as a therapy assistant in the community. And then whilst I was in the community, that's when I came across an occupational therapist, um, one of my colleagues, and I kind of saw the work that she did and how she kind of carried, carried the role of an OT um, and just the amount of things you can do in the community as an OT in terms of equipment, in terms of kind of arranging kind of um, an individual's pathway 
and just kind of liaising with other healthcare professionals. I thought the OT role in a community was so vital and so crucial um, in that transitional stage from hospital back home. And then um, my mum and dad, they're both social workers as well. So I was close to doing social work, um, but my mum, one of her colleagues is a social worker uh, working in the council. So um, I had the opportunity to shadow her. And again, that just kind of made, made that decision that yeah, OT is something that I want to get into. So then I did my degree in OT and then yeah, here I am as an, as an occupational therapist. Thank you. And welcome as an occupational therapist. That's lovely. And it's interesting. So you had some sort of connection to the system already through your parents being in social services. Did you say they're yes, social yeah, they're workers? So, social workers, both of them, mum and dad, yeah. Well, well, so you had a yeah. good kind of grounding already from a family level, really. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, my, my sister as well, she's a, she's a doctor and my <gasps> other sister is a social worker. So oh everyone God. in my family, a healthcare worker, so I had no pressure. I was close to being a social worker, but um, I just saw that there was so much paperwork. They're always in the media, but not uh. the right stuff all the time. So I just thought with OT, and again, um, I, was, I was close to doing physio as well. But I think um, when I was looking at the curriculum and uh, modules, um, physio, there was a lot of uh, um, tests and stuff. And I'm more of a um, practical learner and I like doing uh, coursework and like, I like having time mm. to kind of do my work rather than when it comes to uh, the test, I always kind of freeze and have an anxiety panic and kind of don't do as well. So mm. I just thought OT, especially with the versatility, which we'll get into about OT was, was the, better, the better choice. Okay, so there's something else you're bringing into the equation here then. It was about the course as well and how that fitted into you as a learner as well so you didn't want to be examined you wanted to have the the other option of doing coursework as well to be successful yeah because yeah. um I think in school I think I learned it from reflecting in my days at school when it came to tests no matter how hard I studied or prepared for the test when it came to it I just had a, a mad anxiety attack so I just thought it, it was the same thing would happen deja vu if I do um the physio course because there's a lot more tests involved during the model so I just thought yeah OT and um, and again even the setting I work in uh, community physical rehab I work closely with the physiotherapist and because of my kind of rehab and exercise background I just thought being able to blend in equipment assistive technology as well as um, OT input um, was yeah very good. Well lots of intersections between your skills your also education needs or wants and your desires within what you wanted to do as a future profession. Thank you for that. That was really interesting. I can't, oh, I'm enjoying this. Wow. Now let's go to Andre. How did you find out about occupational therapy? Uh, hi, guys. Um, well, my story is not as um, interesting as their one, really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I've I, done a previous degree in. In, in in criminology after finishing that degree in criminology I think I worked for maybe a year in different types of roles and I, I just wasn't I hated them really and then one day I think I was just and I was just looking at alternatives I think I just wanted to go back to uni I think I, I, I just liked the uni <laughs> and then I stumbled across this course and I realized it was fully funded as well at that time um, and I was like this looks interesting and I just applied for it and 
I literally stumbled into the world of occupational therapy. Uh, there's no bigger story than that, really. And since then, um, <laughs> I've, um, yeah, just progressed up the ranks, really. It's as simple as that from, on my side. There isn't any kind of uh, inspirational story behind it. I was running away from the real world. <laughs> and then you landed in the real world of occupational therapy. Uh, <laughs> Andre, I was just going to ask you one thing because you're not a clinician anymore, are you? What, well, what are you doing right now? Yeah, I am an occupational therapist, but I've gone into senior management. So I am an operations manager now. So I, um, I work for a local authority and I oversee five services. They include a, um, they include a reablement service. Um, they include a, a hospital social work team, um, a couple of care homes, day services, and um, uh, and a major adaptations team as well. So yeah, I've just got like a, a wide brief underneath me. Um, so I basically manage the managers, you might will say. Um, so I, I'm, I'm more strategic level now, but my, my role before was uh, as an occupational therapy manager. So I used to manage the major adaptations um, service and then I moved into this role. It's just it's more strategic. So I still got my OT hat on, but um, I, I manage other professions now. So that's, that's a, a quite an interesting dynamic. So that's like a career progression um, kind of pathway. So are you uh, in, and sorry to, if you think this is too personal, you don't have to answer it, but are you in a band eight position? Um, no, I'd probably be the equivalent of a band nine because I'm in the local oh. first. Um, so it'll be, <laughs> so it, I think it's the equivalent of, an, an, if, if you're looking at NHS um, and gender, I think it's a level nine. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to hear that because it's good to see that. So it's, it's, it's good. You could share that with us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Very inspirational. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Kweku, over to you. I left you last because, you know, we see you and hear you too much. <laughs> Want to hear other people. No, I'm trying to be like Andre. I'm trying to be like Andre. Trying to get to those level nine levels. That that's <laughs> that, that kind of that's a that's a that's a nice level to be at, Andre. Um, you know, but it's good though. It's good to see people in that position because that means that uh, you know uh, it's possible for us to be in that position as well. I always admire that. But yeah, no, I I also studied sports science at university as my first degree. I always had an interest in wanting to work with team sports and uh, basically make people better at what they do. That's, that's, that was my ideal when I studied, studied sports science. Um, so when I came out of university, I, it was very difficult to find a role at that time, uh, at that age as well, that was paid because you had to do a lot of internships. And I was just like, I, I, didn't, I didn't go to university for three years to... To, to not get paid <laughs> only get paid travel expenses so I just like just went into work into um into a gym um I worked there for a little while and then my friend from college when we studied sports studies in college reached out to me and he was he was working as a sports technician in a learner disabilities or intellectual disability uh, award and um, also in the mental health rehab ward and he said he was leaving to become a paramedic and they were looking for someone to replace him I was like, oh, that's that's quite interesting job. It was again, it was close to my house. So I was thinking I could just roll out of bed <laughs> and be there as well. So I took advantage of that. Um, I got there. Um, 
I got there and I started doing the job and I just I, it was just amazing it was a fantastic it was a fantastic job it was actually on the same line as helping people to become a, a little bit better but in a completely not in a, obviously like a professional sports arena <laughs> so it just really changed my mind it made me and I did that quite early on as well I think I was about 22 so that really helped me grow as a person as well uh, so when I was there, I was supervised by an occupational therapist. Um, I was working alongside um, nurses, you know, psychologists in the, in the wide MDT. And again, I think someone said it earlier, you, you, you sort of hit a glass ceiling when, you, when you're at band four or band three, band four. You, there's, no, there's nowhere else to go. So I'm looking around thinking I, I need some more money. I need to get myself a house. I need to, get, I need to make some more money somehow. And then luckily I, they were funding the courses. I was thinking, yeah, I want to do a master's so I can get get the OT quickly. But and I, and I thought about it, the master's they weren't going to fund me to do that. So I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be a hard slog. You have to get, you have to go four years, <laughs> four years hard slog. But my partner um, was was very supportive at the time. Um, we just had a, our first child as well. Um, actually, no, that was the second child as <laughs> well at that time. So I, I was thinking to myself, oh, this might be a bit tricky if I go to university for four years. It's quite, it's quite tough. But luckily, I was supported at, at work and I had really good um, occupational therapists around me, re- really, really good um, OTs. Um, they really, really encouraged me to go for the course because I suppose they could see the, the qualities I could bring to the uh, profession. Again, I didn't really see any any like occupational therapist around I didn't really see anyone around but I just in my mind I had one track mind at that time I just wanted to get the course <laughs> get it done and progress up um and luckily yeah I, I, I went to university and then I really enjoyed my time at university I really enjoyed the course I learned quite a lot um and I'm still learning now and, and I'm an occupational therapist now so I'm really enjoying it there's lots in there isn't there the, the thing about when you get jobs you one of the biggest things is location. Do I have to travel very far? <laughs> you kind of mentioned that straight away. Obviously, about career progression, that's what kind of triggered you into starting to look at maybe a professional course that will get you a job with a better career progression, really, than mm-hmm. where you were, and more money as mm-hmm. well, which is very important as well. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of things in there that, kind of I recognize and a lot of students say the same things as well when when we talk about their first year when they come in what made you come into occupational therapy these are similar things they talk about as well but you know the thing obviously like now thinking back now I'm like working and I'm obviously earning money and looking after my family actually you know NHS doesn't pay that great you know we have to be it's a pay that you get in NHS is not going to really you know, build you massive houses and buy you nice cars and, you know, invest in businesses, whatever you want to do. It's not that big. But actually, what I found out when I did become uh, like qualified and then moved up the band, uh, it comes with a certain level of self-esteem and self-worth as well at the same time. Yeah, money is good because you need to look after your family and look after yourself. Um, but at the same time, you need to feel happy where you are in, in life as well at the same time. So, yeah, it, it was about about me at the beginning. But now it's, it's, it's more like actually I'm making progress in myself and I'm, I feel happy and I feel settled that I can, I'm, I'm happy enough to look after my family. And that's all that matters, really. Yeah, there, there's there's a shift. Life is dynamic and we <laughs> always change what we think about it what we want to do about it and it's all about context isn't it so 
as much as the NHS doesn't pay a lot of money and same as education, I guess, where I am, there's something that makes us stay is something about that job satisfaction and that vision that we could be going somewhere else with it, you know, and that it, it keeps us going. But yes, money is not great. <laughs> I'm going to go on to question two. And probably Andre will think this doesn't, this is not for me, this question. It probably isn't. I might bypass you, Andre. But uh, <laughs> what specialism do you work in as an occupational therapist? And what does your work involve? If I go to um, Chike first, if that's okay. Yeah, so uh, um, Bantics of Patient Therapy, I'm based in the community at the moment. So um, I'm kind of supporting the transition from patients from hospital going back home. So yeah, my job uh, involves kind of uh, collaborative work, um, working together with the patient, the carer, the family, um, just to kind of create goals and create plans to kind of help the transition back home and reintegrating them back into the community. So whether that be with equipment, whether that be with kind of um, organizing the care plan and the structure to kind of support their day-to-day -day routine and the ADLs, or kind of liaising with other um, teams of the community um, which they can engage in and access easily. So um, yeah, it's a very rewarding role. And we kind of, um, we're, we're six weeks service. So during that six weeks, that's when they have kind of intense therapy input. Um, so that would be with the physiotherapists and um, the therapy assistants. And yeah, they'll go through exercise programs, practice transfers, um, kind of progress their mobility, whether that be with a frame, to a stick, to crutches, et cetera. And kind of, yeah, just kind of go, go about the role that way really, so. I'm sorry, I, did, I might have missed this. Is, is that at home or is it in hospital still? Where you at home. It? At home. So um, it's the transition from hospital to home. So I'll either go in their home or if they're getting discharged into a care home or a nursing home or residential home or an independent living centre, we'll still go out there and um, assess them within their home environment, kind of see what their baseline was and kind of devise uh, a plan to kind of get them back to being as independent as possible. Thank you for that. That's, you know, as an educationist, that's my whole thing in that the, the occupation should be, uh, occupational therapy should be in real context. And for me, it's always about the home or like you say about the residence or about work and things like that. And I know if there's a hospital occupational therapist amongst you, you might uh, oppose that view. We'll see. Because yeah, I, I, <laughs> I have my, my first job was band five rotation. So, um, I, yeah, working in a hospital, I, I did feel at times I was quite restricted to kind of kind of further my kind of goals and um, plans for the patient. And because it's quite most settings are quite acute settings in the hospital. Um, it's very, I, I found any very business orientated and we need to discharge the patient as soon as possible. We need to kind of get them home to free up the bed. So you couldn't really develop that relationship and that rapport as much with the patient in the hospital. But I find in the community, I do get more time to kind of uh, see what their, you know, their, their hobbies, their, their, their goals are and kind of um, create more, be more creative with creating kind of um, ideas to kind of get them to reach, to reach their goals. Yeah, I guess the hospital occupational therapists are getting the the patients ready for you so that you can start your therapy. <laughs> that that's that's their role, isn't it, to make sure they can yeah. get them out home yeah. at home so safely kind of, for that to start the next therapy bit. Yeah, so kind of that liaison and that kind of communicating with the OTs in the hospital to kind of see what how they progress so that you can kind of carry on 
in this community is very, very important, along with other MBT workers as well, the nurses, the, um, yeah, the doctors as well, etc. Oliver, over to you. What's your specialism and what does it involve? Okay, so I'm considered, considered a social services occupational therapist. Um, and what that means is, instead of working for like NHS or health, I work for the local authority. Basically, my role considers it, it incorporates quite a lot of things, but it's mainly sort of uh, minor, major adaptations, um, seating, um, moving and handling, what else, like right sizing, so um, ensuring that people have got the right level or packages of care, which can be quite um, interesting at times. So yeah, that, that sort of really encompasses what, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but because of the sort of the team that we work in, we have quite a lot of OTAs. <clears throat> so I have to supervise OTAs um, where they will, they will mainly do sort of the, some adaptations up to a certain point, but when it starts to become a little bit more complex, those cases come to me. So I, I, I find that mainly I'm doing sort of very complex adaptations and, moving and handling those are sort of the two areas that I'm would say that I specialize in so yeah that's me in a nutshell oh so when you say like complex adaptations would that also mean like if there needs to be like structural changes to the home as yeah, well so, would you get involved with that yeah so any like extensions you know through floor lifts that sort of thing that's where I would take over but more the complexity for for us in terms of in my role is is more to do with the client's condition and get, having a better understanding of how that condition might progress and what they may need in the future and I suppose that's what kind of separates me from what the OTA OTAs do they kind of see the here and now and they prescribe based on that whereas with some of the complex cases um, so for example I've got a lot I've got a couple of cases at the moment who have got like MND so it's thinking okay this is where they are now but where are they likely to, to progress to in the future and what does the property need to look like to enable them to access bathing to be able to you know access different parts of the property to be able to get in and out of their home do you see what I mean so that's 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 where I kind of come in yeah it's like um, very interesting it's like future proofing isn't it like making yeah. it ready for the next change in their function or level of ability. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's, there's also a really heavy sort of pragmatic approach as well, because, you know, when you're working with taxpayers' money, you can't just be throwing things around. So it's really based on clients' needs. And we're always looking at, okay, what is the, without being cheap, but what is the, the, the cheapest way of meeting that client's need? Um, now, if basic equipment or simple adaptations can't meet that need, then that's when we start going down the route, the route of exploring more major adaptations. And I suppose that the whole idea is to try and keep people in their homes, reduce hospital admissions. And I suppose from that perspective, although it is a lot of money, you might think, for example, I don't know, 40, 50,000 pounds to do an extension, it is a lot of money. But if you can keep that person in ho at home and stop them from going into hospital and it might even reduce the amount of care or input that they need on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's quite a it's quite a complex thing. But a lot of the time, the money that is spent can be justified because of the impact that it has on the client, but also the impact it can have on family, their mental health. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a massive it's a massive area. Thank you, Oliver. Valentine, over to you. 
So um, I work as an occupational therapist um, in a children and young people uh, setting, community mental health, so zero to 18 years old. Um, and I'm basically uh, working within a team that assesses children for neurodevelopmental conditions. So it could be autism or, um, you know, or ADHD. So these are kids in, you know, who are in special or extenuating circumstances. So um, yeah, the, the cases that come through to the service are quite complex. And for myself as a band five, it's, and it's, it was my first role as well. So it's, um, you know, I, I'm surrounded by band sixes and, you know, I'm one of the few band fives that are there. So uh, my role actually incorporates quite a bit of care coordinating. The role of OT um, is kind of blurred with uh, care coordinating. So sometimes I don't even feel like uh, it's exactly occupational therapy that I'm doing. But what I do personally with kids, um, I help run uh, virtual uh, online groups as well as uh, offer one-to-one -one therapy. There's a mixture of face-to-face -face as well as virtual, you know, virtual appointments that I, that I do. And the particular interest that I have uh, within this setting is um, running emotion regulation. Well, uh, I tend to call it emotion regulation therapy. So it's more or less emotion intelligence work and um, getting kids to understand what, what emotions are and how they affect everyday functioning, as well as, you know, how it helps them mature, you know, as, a, as an individual, having that process of transitioning from primary school to high school, and then eventually to further education if they wish to do so. And also a lot of uh, work that I do is, is with parents as well. You know, a lot of circumstances that children found themselves in is sometimes, um, yeah, the, the, the end product of, you know, of, of the parenting. So I find myself uh, in, yeah, sometimes parent meetings where we're offering strategies to help parents cope with the children's behavior, as well as working with schools, obviously. Um, so it's, a, it's quite a non-traditional setting. And yeah, that role of OT is quite blurred um, with being a community mental health uh, practitioner. But yeah, there's so much creativity involved in this role. You know, unfortunately, I don't deal with equipment and um, major adaptations or anything like that. I'm more or less uh, dealing with a human mind straight away and a lot of talking, talking therapy. That, that's how that happens. So, and, and yeah, so that's more or less it. Well, that, that's quite interesting. And can I ask, you know, because of the COVID-19 situation, can't get away from it, but uh, are you doing more virtual therapy or are you doing the same amount that you used to do? Yeah, so funny, uh, I started just before COVID kicked in. So I was doing the yeah, face-to-face as usual, but then since outbreak happened, um, yeah, we've moved on to, to virtual. So literally Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams, uh, appointments as well as telephone call um, and it's funny some kids have really relished you know some kids with neuro neurodevelopmental conditions such as autism they have, they've really really enjoyed being at home and being in that safe space that you know that, that environment but it's been detrimental because it's it's set in a, a routine that's you know you know fortunately not not realistic for for most kids where you have to go to school and where you expose challenges either socially and you know as well as sensory as well so um so yeah it's involved with virtual so we've had to really find new ways creative ways to work um and really consider obviously what the child is going through to to, to either we're going to offer face-to-face -face or virtual so thank you for that that was really interesting i'm just thinking i need some of that 
emotional regulation therapy at the moment doing virtual online teaching <laughs> I'm no, having lots uh, of lots of emotional outbursts <laughs> yeah it's it's a common thing and I, I learn a lot you know about myself through doing it as well as learning about uh, my my own children that I do have it's it's very practical and there's limited OT research in, on emotional intelligence but I think there could be more out there that could address you know uh, how OT can have a definitely have an impact in, in this area so really interesting. Thank you Vanjan and I can hear that whole ethos of family-centered therapy when you have a child involved in the therapy services and how you have to look at the wider context of influence as well and I and I heard that in your little um, commentary there. Thank you for that. Kwaku, I just realized you're last again. I'll make sure I don't do that again. <laughs> Next okay. time. Around. It's okay. So I work with young men in a prison setting. My trust I work for is it is comes under the forensic sort of mental health. But I I I would say that I don't work in, in the mental health setting I try to remove myself away from that because as soon as you know we talk about diagnosis and things like that it makes it really difficult sometimes to break away uh, from that thought and actually work with the young men so I work with 18 to 21 year olds so very very dynamic <laughs> very active very energetic impulsive age it's actually a fantastic age to work with it's a complex needs service so they it comes under the um, offender personality disorder pathway network across the prison services so these young men are have been deemed to be high risk or have a high risk of um, violence or high risk of harm that they could potentially cause to other people and also they may have had um, adverse childhood experiences and may display certain traits of different types of personality disorder but due to their age they're not diagnosed so that's that's I, I actually love that aspect of my work that none of these men are diagnosed with any sort of personality disorder because you know that comes with its own stigma attached to that as well. I would say my role is, is a quite a generic role but at the same time I have a very strong occupational therapy identity because I think the, the people that came before me in the service uh, made sure that there was an occupational therapy identity but in general I do very similar work to what the psychologist will be doing in the service so it's I wouldn't call it care coordinating, but I call it key working. So I have my own caseload and I work with these young men for, let's say, if I get, if I'm lucky to get them at 18 years old, I can work with them until they're 21, until they leave the setting. So I could be with them for three years. And that's for, to work with anyone for that period of time. It's amazing. It's fantastic. You get to know them, you know, they get to know you, you, you build a relationship. And one of the things that we work on is relationships because uh, um, one of the things that goes wrong for them, to be in prison is tends to be a breakdown in a relationship of some kind either it's it's a it's involved in gang violence or uh, uh sexual assaults there's, there's a breakdown in, in relationship and communication with them so yeah we in terms of that we 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 devise um like a, a device a formulation together basically developing an understanding of what got them to be where they are now um so we talk about their upbringing or the different developmental stages, the education, or the, the things that they like to do. This is when my OT mind comes in. So we talk about their patterns of doing, their routines when they were in the community, and what that meant to them. So when you're doing something in the community, if you're engaging in violence or engaging in any sort of behaviours which is not deemed as uh, socially acceptable, there must have been a reason why you're doing it. 
what what values would you were you gaining from it what what meaning did it mean to you and that's when like I said the occupational therapy in me comes out a, a lot aside from that we we do a lot of interventions uh, occupational therapy specific interventions as well we do a lot of um, sensory work with the young men we do a lot of creative activities so I we do a uh, like drama work or I've, I've I've done a dance group before with the young men we've got a garden that we go in arts and crafts music we've got a therapeutic music facilitator uh, so literally it's, it's a bit of a free reign when it comes to be using different activities and occupations in there it's just about the interest of the young men and at that age as well they tend to be very very creative um, so and that allows me you know, free reign to use as many resources in the prison within the security systems as possible to get them to engage. And actually what I found is that the more that they engage in something that they particularly like, which is occupational therapy, in terms of meaningful activity, the more they're willing to share with me in, in, during sessions. I'll give you an example. One time I was doing a music session, like I, I took one of the young men to the music room and we just listened to all the, all the types of music he likes, you know, rap, hip hop, UK hip hop, drill music, everything he's listening to. But the amount of information I was able to get from him through that conversation, I, I, I was just, I, it was just amazing. And then two, a couple of weeks later on, he mentioned that he does he can't, he can't believe that he was able, he was he told me all the things that he, he told me <laughs> because it's not something that you know you go around sharing with anyone um so the power of occupation the power of meaningful activity in, in practice is, is very important in, in my role but yeah that's that's i really enjoy my role at the moment so yeah that's that's my specialism wow it sounds so powerful just the idea that having routine and occupation kind of humanizes you again and makes you feel like you belong. There's a whole, such, such a need to belong, to be loved and appreciated, feel like you belong somewhere. And you're, you're kind of trying to bring that out again, that they've lost all of that. It's, it's an unpopular opinion in terms of obviously like sometimes when I've told people about my role, you know, the first thing people go to is about what about the victims? And that's that's absolutely fine. That's that's we don't shy away from those conversations either. We don't shy away from talking about the the, the crime they are in the prison for, the offence they're in the prison for. We don't shy away from that. Um, and actually it's talking about putting yourself in maybe the victim's position. Um, and that what Valentine was talking about, the emotional intelligence and understanding what the emotions of the people around and the impact on the family actually humanizes the prisoner, the young man as well, um, because there's always a view that, you know, young men in prison or young people in prison or anyone in prison is, a, is really bad. Everyone's really bad. Everyone's really dangerous. But I always say they just need a bit of love. You know, they just need a bit of love. They, be, <laughs> they just need a bit of love because the society's basically push them to the side and you know um when I actually do things with them you can see the real real side of them coming through thank you thank you for that Kaiko